right, so here we are at podcast lecture number 10. This podcast lecture is going to be over relational psychoanalysis. But before talking about relational psychoanalysis, I'm going to do a very short review where I talk about ego psychology, self-psychology, and attachment theory. Let's start with ego psychology. Ego psychology was made in the United States, and it was very influenced by the ideology of capitalism. It has as one of its goals the goal of making the individual's ego stronger and more flexible. This means that ego psychologists work to increase what is called ego functioning. And one of the ways that they do this is by trying to make us less defensive. The theory relies on this thing called the economic model, which postulates that there is a finite and limited amount of energy in our psychological system. And that all of the things that we're doing, all the things that we're working on, keeping track of, all the different things that are taking our attention are also taking some energy. One of the things that's taking our energy is defending our conscious mind from all of the stuff that has been put into our unconscious. And ego psychologists work to make an individual less defensive. What that means is they work to help take stuff which has been repressed into the unconscious and they try to take it out of the unconscious because the idea there is if you can take this stuff out of the unconscious and make us conscious of it, the energy that's tied up in defending ourselves from it, the energy that's tied up in repressing whatever that unconscious stuff is, can be freed up and then redirected towards other things. So that's ego psychology in a nutshell. Self-psychology. It's also made in the United States, made by a dude named Heinz Kohut, who believed that there was this thing called the self and that that self was this very deep, very fundamental part of us. Kohut believed that the self is a co-created thing made in concert by an individual and the different people and institutions in that individual's environment. Uh, sometimes we have important relationships with people or with institutions. Uh, an example of an important relationship with an institution might be with a church or with a school, something like that. Uh, and Kohut believed that the self is created you know, by you, me as individuals, but it's always created along with these other important relationships that we have in our lives. He also believed that the self is never done being formed, that it is constantly being formed and kind of reformed throughout our entire life cycle. And he believed that relationships are absolutely super important to the formation of the self, that we need to have good relationships with different people and institutions that can help us form a more functional, cohesive, healthy self. And uh, he thought that even if we have a pretty good self, and at this point in your life, you might look at yourself and think, mm, my self's not too bad, it's pretty good. He would say that the project of maintaining that self of keeping it strong and healthy and cohesive is something that you're never done doing that you got to constantly work at. And it's a lot easier to work at it. If you have help from responsive self objects from responsible, not responsible, pardon me, responsive people in your life who can help you kind of become sort of like the best version of yourself that you can be. So that's kind of self psychology in a nutshell attachment. Uh, so in the last podcast lecture, I talked about some different attachment thinkers. I talked about John Bowlby, who came up with the idea of the secure base. And the idea is that if we can internalize a secure, if we have and then can internalize a secure base, we can develop a secure attachment. Later on, Mary Ainsworth, who was 
Bowlby's research assistant, articulated two different subtypes of insecure attachment. So she said people can be securely attached and they can be insecurely attached. There's two ways that people are generally insecurely attached. They can be avoiding and dismissing their emotions um, where they are, they try to be like, oh, those, the, that anxiety, that sadness, that, that difficult emotion, I don't have that. Nope, not here. None of that. I'm just good all the time. I'm stable. I'm, I'm doing all right. That's one type of insecure attachment. And the second type is anxious and preoccupied where people are just like, oh my gosh, I'm freaking out. I'm having a panic attack. Um, something's gone wrong. And that one thing that's gone wrong has led to 800 things going wrong. And of it, 800 things are going wrong. My life is totally massively messed up and I'm, this is terrible. This is awful. Oh my God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? They're very, very high strung, prone to freaking out quite a bit. Uh, after Mary Ainsworth, we have Mary Maine. She cre- she articulated a style of attachment, which is called uh, disorganized or unresolved. And this is people who grew up in environments that were extremely inconsistent. Uh, and that means that at certain points, the environment did give them what they wanted, what they needed, gave them love, gave them affection, gave them kindness and tenderness. And at other times, it, it gave them the opposite. It gave them abuse and neglect and violence. And these are people who desperately want to form connections with people, desperately want to trust other people, but they have a very hard time doing that because in their past, trusting other people has been something which is always dicey. It's always dangerous. You never know if it's going to be okay to trust somebody or if they're going to hurt you as a result of you trusting them. And that forms a kind of disorganized attachment, which is very similar to the symptoms that we see for borderline personality disorder in the DSM-5. So there we go. That's attachment. Real quick, ran through that and self-psychology and ego psychology. So with that review completed, we are going to turn towards something which is called relational psychoanalysis uh, or relational theory. You might want to call it that. But before we do that, I wanted to say say one thing real quick here. And, and that is that there are some psychoanalytic theories that I know a lot about. And there are some psychoanalytic theories that I don't know as much about. Relational psychoanalysis is definitely in the latter group. It is a sort of a body of concepts and ideas and practices that I've only kind of dabbled in. I have not spent nearly as much time with relational psychoanalysis as I have interpersonal theory or self-psychology or object relations, um, classical Freudian psychoanalysis, Lacanian schools of thought. All of those I've spent way more time with than I have relational theory. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's reasons for that. One of them is that when I've dabbled in the relational theory, I've found certain things interesting, but by and large, I've not found a whole lot of stuff in it that really kind of speaks to me or that makes me go like, ooh, I really, really, really want to know more about that. Every now and then there's something I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting, but there's nothing that like really grabs me in it. Uh, now, there might be something in it that really grabs you. And if that's the case, I hope that you'll certainly investigate it more. But I just want to be really clear and say that there isn't that for me in this particular theory. Uh, along with that, relational psychoanalysis is pretty new. Uh, it's definitely, I think it's actually the newest theory out of all the theories that we'll be discussing in this class. It's the youngest one. And so it has the least amount of history behind it. Um, and that means that there's just not as much to dig into as there is with some of those other kind of schools of thought. But be all that as it may, uh, I have definitely spent some time exploring what is relational psychoanalysis. And what I'm going to do now in this podcast lecture is my very best to share with you some of the things that I've learned, some of the things that I know, 
And it's my hope that all the stuff that I share with you in this podcast lecture will be something that will be a good supplement or a good enough, maybe, supplement to the stuff that you read about in the chapter for this week. So now that I've said all that, I am going to do my introduction music. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about this thing called relational psychoanalysis. talk about this thing called relational psychoanalysis, uh, which could also, I think, be called relational psychotherapy as well. You could use either term, actually. So relational psychoanalysis is a school of psychoanalytic thought that was, for the most part, created in the United States, and its creation started in approximately the 1980s, and it has continued as a school of thought since then to the present day. It is a kind of um, philosophical way of working with patients, I think, which focuses on integrating what would be called the interpersonal style of a gentleman named Harry Stack Sullivan. I'm going to be talking about him and his ideas a little bit later on in this podcast lecture. And to a lesser extent, the ideas of a Hungarian psychoanalyst named Sandor Ferenczi. And they want to take those two, Sullivan and Ferenczi, and they want to integrate their ideas about the importance of relationships with object relations theory, which is something that we haven't covered yet in this class, but it's something that we are going to be covering pretty soon. So the relationists are these people who take from a bunch of different thinkers. They kind of cherry pick different things that these different thinkers have come up with, and they try to put them together. They kind of try to make a, a collage, I guess, of a bunch of different concepts from different theories. And for that reason, there are many people who would say that relational psychoanalysis is not a theory in its own right, that it's more of a style or more of a framework that borrows from a bunch of other theories and kind of integrates a bunch of different stuff altogether. So I hope that that's clear. Uh, you might think it's a theory. You might not think it's a theory. It's not actually, I think, all that important if you think it is or isn't. Uh, but what is important is that you understand that relational psychoanalysis rather than creating a lot of its own kind of like original concepts, a lot of its own original ideas, what it does is it takes a lot of ideas from people who came before it, and it kind of combines those ideas in a really new and interesting way that a lot of people happen to find appealing. So if we were to look at all of the different theories that relational psychoanalysis pulls from, one of the things that I think we would notice is that the work of Sullivan, the work of Ferenczi, and the work of the object relations theorists all tend to say that personality is something that an individual is not born with, that personality is something that emerges or is constructed over time, and that one of the primary things that influences the creation, the construction, the maintenance of a personality over the course of a person's lifetime is the quality of the relationships that somebody has. What this 
another way of saying this could be that if somebody is lucky enough to have many really good relationships, and by good relationships, I mean relationships with people who know more than you do, who can do things that you can't, and who are willing to be patient with you and teach you how to do the things that they already know how to do. And this goes for really simplistic stuff like tying your shoe, talking, um, learning the difference between left and right, and more complicated things like keeping yourself emotionally regulated, um, learning how to orient yourself in space and time, really complicated stuff. The idea of the relationists is that, like I said, when we're born, no one knows how to do any of these things. No one knows that at birth. As we move through our life, we are dependent upon, completely and totally dependent upon other people to teach us how to do all of the things that we know how to do. Uh, You know, this is from an earlier podcast lecture. You know, I talked about the difference between instincts and the uh, drives. Uh, Instincts are the things, just as review here, that we know from birth. We know how to breathe. You know, we know how to digest food. We know how to sweat. We know how to shiver. That's actually a pretty limited amount of stuff that we know right away. Everything else that we do in our lives is something that we've learned from somebody else. So if you have good, wonderful, patient, caring people who are willing to teach you how to do these things and be patient with you while you learn and make a lot of mistakes, then your personality will probably be a lot more stable and it will be a personality that is able to help you get a lot of the things that you want. However, if you are somebody who comes from a background where you don't have a lot of relationships with people who are willing to be calm and patient with you, who are willing to teach you how to do the various things that you need to know how to do, then your personality is going to be weaker. And by weaker, what I mean is that it is going to be a personality which is more difficult for other people to be around. Um, It would be a personality that might be recognized as a somewhat pathological personality, i.e. it could be recognized as a personality disorder. Um, So hopefully that's all clear. The main point, the main, main, main point of all this is that your personality, whether it's a good personality, a bad personality, somewhere in between those two, is constructed over time. And the thing that you need to construct it and to construct it well is good, nurturing, caring relationships with other people who are able to do things that you can't and who are able to then teach you how to do the things that they know how to do. If you understand that, it is my opinion that you understand kind of the core of relational theory and relational psychoanalysis and relational psychotherapy. So how does this all fit in to therapy, the kind of therapy that people do? Well, it, it ties into the therapy because um, relationists would, I think, believe, I say I think because I don't consider myself to be a relational person, but, uh, you know, this is what I think they believe. Uh, They would say that when people come to you for psychoanalysis or for psychotherapy, what they're looking for is one of those relationships with another person who can teach the patient how to do things that the patient doesn't perhaps currently know how to do or doesn't know how to do very well. Uh, So somebody might come to you and they might be prone to losing their temper. They might be prone to um, uh, being emotionally immature in a variety of different ways. And hopefully, you know, you are somebody who doesn't have those same problems, or if you do, you don't have them to the same extent that the patient does. And the patient is going to come and they're going to sort of uh, be who they are in your presence. They're going to show you in a variety of different ways 
who they are and the problems they have. They might talk about them. They might enact them. They might, they might act out in front of you. And your job as the therapist or as the analyst is to witness this stuff. And when you witness it, to not kind of get caught up in your own emotional reactions to what you're seeing. You don't want, or I should say that a little bit differently. You don't want to get too caught up in the negative emotions that you have to whatever it is that they're doing. You want to, so if somebody frustrates you, if somebody's annoying, if somebody says things that are really offensive, rather than getting offended or annoyed or frustrated, what you're going to do is you're going to behave in a way which is much more caring and nurturing. And you're going to, in a sense, try to teach the person that uh, there's a better way, maybe, that they can relate to other people. And you do that by having your relationship with them. Your relationship becomes the tool that is used as a way of uh, showing, teaching, proving to the patient that there are other ways that they could relate to people that might be more satisfying than the current ways that they are relating to people. So what I'm going to do next is I'm going to try to compare this style of therapy to a lot of the stuff that we've talked about previous to this. So in classical psychoanalysis and in a lot of the other kind of schools of thought that we've discussed so far, one of the things that an analyst or a psychodynamic psychotherapist might do is they might try to um, not be super active in the therapy. And what I mean by that is that a patient would come to an analyst or somebody who is doing psychoanalytic psychotherapy. And in the beginning, you know, you might kind of introduce yourself to the patient, talk with them about who you are and how you work and that sort of thing. But once the the therapy starts, what the therapist or the analyst does is they kind of take a step back. And what they try to do is they try to allow for the patient to develop a transference to them. Then what they do is they interpret that transference as it emerges. So to do that, the analyst or the therapist tries to not give away too much about who they are, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, so on and so forth. They allow for the patient to, in a sense, imagine that and then to project whatever it is that they're imagining onto the analyst, onto the therapist. And then the therapist or the analyst tells the person, it's, they interpret these projections, they describe them back to the patient. And the idea of doing this is that if you are able to be more like a blank screen, then what happens is the patient imagines who you are and their imagination is based off of, you know, what they think, not off of how you've behaved. And so you're getting a much clearer idea of how it is that they think about you as an analyst and probably authority figures generally by allowing them to develop whatever fantasy they want to develop of you and then explaining that fantasy back to them. Now, relationalists would say that this might work for some people, but it certainly doesn't work for all people. And uh, especially people maybe who have not had a lot of really responsive, good, caring relationships in their life. If people have only had relationships that are kind of like cool and detached then this kind of style of, of analysis or psychotherapy where the, the therapist or analyst is less involved is probably going to not only be not helpful, it might even be damaging to a person. And so what they would do is they would try to cultivate 
uh, a much more what we would think of um, interpersonal relationship with their patient. It's much more of a conversation, a give and take. It seems more like a conversation that you might have with a normal person in the real world when you're talking to a relationalist. And when you're talking to like a classical psychoanalyst, it's not like a conversation that I think you would have in a real world. There are some people who don't want their therapist to talk, right? They don't want to know what their therapist thinks. They don't want to know what their therapist um, has gone through, so on and so forth. They want to show up and they want to tell the therapist about their life, their problems, so on and so forth. And they want the therapist to listen and to, to only say something when they have something that would be useful to the patient based off of what the patient has said. If you're that person, the classical style is probably more to your liking. There are other people who would want their therapist to be more like the parent they never had, somebody who will sit with them and really have more of like a partnership, you might say, an equal partnership between you and them and who will talk to you in a, in a way which is extremely conversational. It'll be like having a friend that you pay for. If that's something that's more to your liking, you probably like the relational style more. Okay, so now that I've done all of that, what I'm gonna do here is I'm going to talk about some of the people, the thinkers, whose theories were really influential to the creation and the maintenance and the ongoing um, remixing, I guess, of what we call relational psychoanalysis or relational psychotherapy. Before launching into the theoretical work of a couple of people, I want to start this section of the podcast lecture by reminding you all of something that I'm pretty sure that a lot of you have heard or at least heard some version of because it's said a lot. It's something that people say a lot when they do, you know, psychotherapeutic work. And that thing is that a lot of times, the specific sort of theoretical orientation that you keep in your head that you think in doesn't matter as much as the relationship that you build with your patients does. Uh, people have also said sometimes the quote unquote only thing that matters is the relationship or that the relationship is the most important therapeutic tool that there is. So that's the thing that I think that many of you have heard. Some of you may agree with that. Some of you may disagree with that. Um, for whatever this is worth, personally, I do think that the therapeutic relationship is pretty important, but I don't, I think that saying that it's the only important thing or even perhaps the most important thing, I'm not so sure about that. And we'll talk more about that when we meet as a class, I think. Um, if anybody wants to ask me about that when we meet, please go right ahead and do so. But the relationship is important. It is a important thing among other important things. And what I think is a mistake that people make sometimes is that they think all that they need to do is try to have a good relationship with somebody. And if they do that, if they're able to have a good relationship or a good enough relationship with their patient, that that good relationship will have this kind of like massive 
wonderful curative effect. And I think that that's wrong. You know, I think that having a good relationship with a patient or with a person is a great thing. Uh, in clinical work, I'd, I'd also say it's an important thing. But I, I think that you have to do something with the relationship in order for it to be clinically, clinically useful. Another way of saying what I'm trying to say here is that the relationship does matter. But what matters is how you use the relationship that you create with your patient. And this is where theory comes in. Because theory, I think, can actually operate as a pretty good map on how to, or maybe not a map, a set of uh, uh, instructions or something like that. It's a guide, I guess, to how you can use a relationship to work well with your patients. Now, relational theory pulls from a couple of different main kind of theoretical bodies of work. One of them is self-psychology, the self-psychology of Heinz Kohut, and we've talked about that in a previous podcast lecture. So I'm not going to say a whole lot about that. But basically what Kohut does is he tries to create a relationship with people and then he tries to use that relationship to help them create a more cohesive, strong kind of foundational self. And one of the ways that he does that is by asking two questions. What is it that this person needed at an earlier stage of their life, but they didn't get it? And then how might I use this relationship to provide them with that thing? And those things might be grandiosity. It might be... Uh, idealization, you know, uh, being a bit of a role model, or it could be twinship. You know, those are the transferences that Kohut watches out for. And when he senses them, he tries to use the relationship to provide whatever was missing from an earlier stage of a person's life. In addition to that, relational theorists and practitioners also use uh, object relations theory. And there's one person in particular who they probably use the most, and that's the work of Donald Winnicott. And we're going to be talking about Winnicott pretty extensively in a future class. So I'm going to kind of just hold on on that right now. Um, the next person who they make use of is a gentleman named Sandor Ferenczi, who is a Hungarian. And Ferenczi was one of Freud's original close friends, kind of like one of the original um, people who really got into psychoanalysis with Freud. Uh, there's a couple of people who pe names who people know generally. They associate Freud with uh, Carl Jung, um, and they also associate him with Alfred Adler, Freud, Adler, Jung. Those are the big three. But there's a whole bunch of other people in addition to Adler and Jung who kind of coalesced around Freud. And Ferenczi was one of them. His ideas are interesting because he was somebody who kind of posited that when people do psychotherapy or psychoanalysis, they work with people and they do try to help them. They, they listen to their patients and they try, and as they listen to their patients, they try to hear things and then they try to use the things they hear to offer something that the patient could perhaps use to make themselves feel better. But Ferenczi took this a step farther and said, whether they know it or not, a lot of times the patient is also helping the clinician, that the clinician benefits quite a bit and can sometimes work out their own kind of stuff through the therapeutic work that they're doing with their patients. Now, Freud had a lot of misgivings about this. Ferenczi kind of shared this idea, and Freud was like, yeah, maybe, but you got to be really careful because um, if you're using your patients too much, especially when they're paying you, you know, to do clinical work, that's kind of a problem, right? And Freud also thought that, it, you know, some what Ferenczi called co-analysis or, or co-psychotherapy, the idea that both the therapist and the patient are in a, sense kind of fixing, curing each other. Freud thought that that could lead to some dangerous situations 
where people might blur boundaries. And as it turns out, Frenzy actually did end up blurring boundaries and did have a sexual relationship with one of his patients, which is one of the things that Freud was always like, you know, very dead set against. But anyways, uh, that's Frenzy's ideas in a nutshell, that the therapist and the patient are both always already kind of helping each other. Now, the therapist hopefully and probably is helping the patient a little bit more than the patient is helping the therapist, but the patient does help the therapist. And Frenzy's like, it would do us well to recognize that, that that's something that happens as well. And that brings me to the last person who I want to talk about, and that's the work of a gentleman named Harry Stack Sullivan. Harry Stack Sullivan is an American, and he was somebody who was uh, trained in psychoanalysis, and he worked within a hospital. And what he, the kind of hospital that he worked in was a hospital for people who had chronic mental illness. He was working with people who were schizophrenic, probably people who had what not what nowadays we'd recognize as like profound autism, uh, really serious mental health conditions. And he kind of went against the grain. You know, Freud thought that you couldn't use psychoanalysis to treat people who were, uh, quote marks, psychotic. So that would be people with schizophrenia, people with profound autism, uh, those sorts of things. Sullivan was like, I'm not so sure. I think maybe you could use psychoanalysis in a way to treat people who are psychotic, people who do have chronic and profound mental health conditions. And he tried to do that. And one of the ways that he would do it is that he would uh, kind of create a psychoanalytic sort of situation with people who were chronically mentally ill, where he would offer himself up. He would be like, hey, I'm here. I'd like to listen to you talk about whatever it is that you want to talk about, even if it's like kind of very strange, very bizarre nonsensical things I want to hear. Or sometimes what he would do is he would just kind of sit and pay attention to how people were communicating with him. Maybe they would communicate with um, their bodies. Maybe they wouldn't use language, but they'd communicate another way. And he would try to listen to what it was that people, what he thought people were attempting to communicate to him and then kind of describe that back to them. And he had some really remarkable outcomes he was able to take people who many individuals thought would never like improve and and they did improve in his care. Now, they, it took a long time for them to improve. He didn't do anything in like 10 weeks or anything. It took years and years and years. But he would work with people for years and years and years. And over the years, they would very slowly and very gradually improve. And, you know, several years of small improvements added up to kind of big improvements. And that's one of the things that Sullivan was able to do. Now, he believed that the relationship that he had with his patients was extremely important. And one of the things that he did is he was always kind of, he became very aware of the fact that everybody, you know, his patients who were chronically mentally ill, um, all of the people who he supervised, uh, you, me, everybody we know, he thought everybody is always constantly performing a particular mental operation whenever we do something. Uh, we're judging our, our the how we behave. And we judge it in two ways. So the first way is, do we feel like what we did is what we wanted to do? Do we feel good about what we did, what we said, how we said it, how we behaved? You know, if we're giving ourselves the thumbs up, then we feel like we're good in relation to ourselves. And we're also constantly kind of judging ourselves based off of how other people respond to us. So if, if I, you know, have an interaction with somebody and I think, the way that I behaved was good. I feel like I'm good with myself. And if the person who I engaged with gives me a positive response, I'll feel like I'm probably good in relation to them. So thumbs up in relation to me, thumbs up in relation to them. I'm good in both cases. In that kind of situation, Sullivan would say anxiety is super low. 
However, there are some situations where that's not the case, where I might say something and I might think that I said something smart or interesting or cool or good, but based on the reaction I get from other people, they're not liking what I'm saying. And so it seems like I'm getting the thumbs down from them. So thumbs up from me, thumbs down from them. Or the inverse could occur. I could say something to somebody that makes them feel good, but I could know that I'm being kind of like dishonest, maybe lying to them or, or something like that. So maybe they seem like they're giving me the thumbs up, but internally I'm giving myself the thumbs down. In either of those situations, anxiety goes up. And there are some situations where we do something and we don't feel good about it. And then the people who watch us do whatever we do or listen to us say whatever we say, they also don't feel good about it. And as a result of that, we get thumbs down in both cases. When those things happen, we have extreme anxiety. So Sullivan thought that one of the things that he noticed in clinical situations is that what everybody's always trying to do is they're trying to minimize the amount of anxiety they feel, i.e. they're always attempting to say things that make themselves feel good in relation to themselves and make themselves feel good in relation to the clinician, the therapist who they're talking to. And he thought that it was always really important to kind of be aware of that calculation, which was always occurring in the mind of the patient and to not abuse that that was happening in the mind of the patient. And this is the heart of what was called interpersonal psychoanalysis or interpersonal theory. And that's just a, a very quick kind of like toe dip in the waters of interpersonal theory. There's a lot more to it than what I've just described to you. But I think that what I've just described is something that will be a good enough kind of introduction to it so that we can discuss this more when we meet as a class. All right. So that's going to conclude this section of the podcast lecture. We only have one more section left where I'm going to talk about one really important idea. And after that, you're going to be done with the podcast lectures for this week. And that last section is going to come after this little bit of transition music. All right, so here we are moving into the final part of this podcast lecture where I want to talk about a concept that appeared in your reading for this week. And it's a concept that I think is really important. I think it's very interesting. And it's one that I think that the text didn't do the best job of explaining. And so what I'm going to try to do is explain it a little bit more to you. And hopefully my explanation will help supplement the reading's explanation. And th that way, when you come to class, if this concept is still not clear to you, you'll at least have a little bit more to go on if you want to ask questions about it. So the concept is the concept of the analytic third. And this is a pretty cool concept that is part of the relational school of psychoanalysis. And to understand it, again, I have to do a comparison between what is perhaps considered to be the, the old or the classical style of psychoanalysis and the kind of like newer relational style of psychoanalysis. So in the old style, the Freudian style, one of the things that's going on is what's being analyzed. What is the aim of the analysis? What, you're, what the analyst or the therapist is trying to focus upon is stuff that is going on inside of the patient. And some things that that could be are things like the patient's desires, their wishes, the things that they really want, but they might not know that they really want them. Uh, the patient's repressed content, uh, some things that have happened to them, some traumas, 
some that that are kind of still hanging out but have become repressed and are coming out in weird and unexpected, often undesirable ways. Dreams and fantasies are other things that exist inside of a person and they can be analyzed by having a person tell you about them and you'll listen to their speech and then based on how they describe their dreams or their fantasies, you'll interpret whatever it is that they say. That is the subjective style of psychoanalysis. It is an analysis of the person as a subject, right? And kind of whatever it is that's going on inside of, of them. That is one way you could think of what classical analysis does. The relational turn and relational psychoanalysis tries to kind of still deal a little bit with some of those same things, but what it's primarily concerned with, the, the main thing that it is attempting to focus on is whatever is playing out in the room between the therapist and the patient, the analyst and the analyst hand to try to witness what is going on in the here and the now between each of them and to use to analyze that, to analyze what's happening between us, right? And this is interesting because what it, what it tries to do is it tries to really hammer home the point that what happens in therapy, what happens in analysis is not one person talking to an actual blank screen, but it's a person talking to a person. You have two human beings both involved in this process and they're both in a sense kind of creating the experience that is the therapy, creating the experience that is the psychoanalysis. That's the the claim that the relational school of psychoanalysis would make and that's what they're trying to understand and analyze. So uh, where a classical analyst might say to a person, you know, uh, tell me about your dream and then they'd listen to the person explain the dream and then they would maybe focus on an, an element of that dream, uh, or I, I suspect uh, enter a relational kind of therapist or a relational psychoanalyst would say when somebody tells them a dream, they might focus on what was it like for you to tell me that dream? What was that like for you? They focus on what happened between the two people. And as I've said in previous parts of this podcast lecture, a lot of people tend to, to find this relational style kind of appealing and something that they they would they think they might like that more than the classical style. Uh, there was a time in my life where I thought that way, where I thought the relational style was more to my liking than the classical style. At this point in my life, I I don't think that anymore. I actually find that the classical style is a style that I happen to find much more interesting and useful than the relational style. Although the relational style is also interesting and is also useful, it's just in in my personal opinion, not as interesting or as useful for me as the classical style is. But anyways, that's kind of, you didn't ask me about my personal opinion. I just gave it to you, but this is my podcast lecture. So I can do those sorts of things. And that's that. If you don't like it, I don't know, uh, listen to another podcast or something like that. Uh, moving on. When, when a relational person is doing this process of trying to understand what is playing out between them and this other person, between them and their patient in the therapeutic process. One of the things that they recognize is that both the therapist and the patient, the analyst and the analysand, have an idea of what this thing called therapy or this thing called psychoanalysis is. They both have an idea about the roles, the parts that they're both supposed to play. Everybody, in a sense, comes into the situation, the therapeutic situation, the psychoanalytic situation with 
some kind of an idea about I'm supposed to be this, you're supposed to be that, and we're supposed to do this thing together in some way. And that set of expectations is what the relationalists call the third. It's You could almost think of it as a set of kind of agreed upon norms, rules, boundaries, those sorts of things that I have in my head and you have them in your head. And we're both kind of what we're, we're doing when we're engaging with each other is we're always playing this weird game of kind of taking my expectations and your expectations and, and seeing if they match up or if they don't match up. And what the relational psychoanalysts are doing is they're kind of trying to be very attuned to that. And then they're interpreting or commenting upon the extent to which those expectations seem to be matched up or seem to be not matched up, seem to be kind of harmonious or non-harmonious when it comes down to it. So an example that might be that a patient comes in and they're talking to a relational psychoanalytic kind of person and the person might, the patient might say something along the lines of, I don't know what to talk about today. And I think a classical psychoanalyst might not even respond to that. They might just stay quiet and, and wait and see what happens next and not, not say anything. Uh, I'm not saying for sure that's what happened, but that's what I suspect could and probably would happen. A relational psychoanalyst, on the other hand, I think would say something like, do you think that you have to come in here with something to say? Is that something that you believe? And that might be where they go because they're trying to, to see did, it, did the patient come with this idea that they're supposed to always have something like prepared and ready to go? Did I give them that expectation? And, and they would, you know, based on if the patient said, yes, I, I do feel that way. Or maybe the patient would say like, actually, no, I don't feel that way. You know, the relational person would, might say like, well, you, why did you say it then? Or if the person said yes, they might say, well, what gave you that idea? And they would try to see if maybe the patient comes in with that idea and that that's an expectation they have. Like when I come to my therapist, when I come to my analyst, I'm supposed to have stuff prepared. And they might then try to say, maybe this is something that's playing out in our relationship. And perhaps it plays out, a similar thing plays out in other relationships in your life as well. And they would be coming to that conclusion based off of, you know, trying to, to understand what the patient sees as the, the set of rules, the set of expectations, the set of norms, uh, the boundaries that exist within the therapeutic relationship and they would be comparing those to, to theirs. The area where they overlap, that's the analytic third. It's the, the space within which the analyst or the therapist's expectations, rules, boundaries, norms overlap with the patient's same stuff, rules, boundaries, norms, et cetera. Um, so hopefully that helps make it make sense. Now, there's a different version of this that I'll be talking about in a future podcast lecture, which is the concept of the big other, so stay tuned for that because that'll come up later. Uh, not now because it doesn't really correspond to the relational school. It really corresponds to something called the Lacanian school of psychoanalysis, which is coming up at some point in the future. Uh, but when I do talk about that, when I talk about the big other, I might hearken back to this description of the analytic third so that you might do a bit of a comparison and contrast between the two things. And that concludes today's podcast lecture. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this. Appreciate that. And uh, I will see you all in class later on in the week. Uh, till then, make some glorious mistakes. Take care.